as we build computers and our image and we see what they can and can't do, we see more and more that we don't fully understand what we are and who we are. And that uh, there may be, uh, it, you know, a lot more. And there really is a rational basis for saying that just the natural material stuff that we can build and, and shape into something like us is not enough. Uh, there is something more. And I think that's very exciting about this technology. It causes us to think uh, very humbly about not just the limits of our knowledge, but uh, the limits of our tools in science and the limits of our philosophy. My name is Rosalind Picard, and I'm a professor at the MIT Media Lab. And I'm also a co-founder of the company Empatica, with an E, and there I serve as chief scientist and chairman of the board. Welcome to Language of God. I'm Jim Stump. This year has been one where many of us have become deeply reliant on technology, much of which uses some sort of artificial intelligence. This very podcast has remained possible through the use of remote recording software and robotic online transcription services. Our worship services now rely on Zoom and Facebook, and our health and livelihood has become reliant on the technology involved in developing a vaccine for COVID. Rosalind Picard is a computer scientist at MIT and has been working on developing the kind of technology that she hopes will contribute to human flourishing on many levels. But one of the requirements in her mind is that computers are able to read and replicate human emotion. It might sound scary to some people, but as you'll hear, the fears are based mostly on science fiction accounts. Rosalind is also a Christian, and her faith has inspired much of her work, which looks to relieve human suffering. We talk about that, but then also about when technology works against human flourishing. Let's get to the conversation. Rosalind, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Good. Well, you're a uh, professor and researcher at MIT in computers. I like to start with a bit of background. So were you always interested in computers or where did that come from? No, <laughs> I was not. As a child, my, my mom was a teacher and an artist and my father was a Navy pilot. And I was interested in a lot of different things. In fact, I really didn't even like science as a kid mm. in school. <laughs> so how did this develop then? Yeah, it, it was a long process where I I knew I was good at math and I, I was a, just a good student. And really, I think in high school, I got kind of pointed toward the possibility of engineering because I was curious about how things worked. And in college, where I went at Georgia Tech, I became especially interested in technology, how computers work. Could I actually understand everything going on inside them and build ones maybe that imitated the human brain. So the capabilities of uh, computers back then were a little bit different. What were those uh, first machines you were working with? Oh, the very first one I saw was one, uh, a friend of mine who I used to go do some art projects with. Her dad had giant computers that were used in financial computation and they would spit out sheets with numbers on them and 
games and all. And I honestly, I didn't think it was that interesting. He thought it was really interesting, (laughs) but I would rather go, you know, paint little uh, ceramic bunny rabbits. (laughs) And uh, given how far uh, computer computing uh, power and technology has come today when you were first uh, working on those and thinking about modeling the human brain and all of that. Did you think that by the time computers can do what they do now that we'd have fully artificial intelligence or conscious machines or anything? What's the What's been the trajectory of that? Well, we are far from conscious machines and from, you know, what, what AI is today or artificial intelligence is so overhyped, it's almost an embarrassment. Even many <laughs> scientists are speaking in ways we should know better than to, to speak. Uh, you know, it's not like in the movies where, you know, it's essentially anything a human wants can uh, be brought forth by a machine. Uh, that mm-hmm. happens in art. That is not what's happening in the real world. However, there is powerful stuff happening with machines, and some of it is awesome. And you know, we we can we can talk more about that if if you'd like. We will in just a, in just a little bit. That's I think going to be the main uh, topic of our conversation here today. But as we are a podcast about science and faith, let me go back again and ask about that second term a little bit. Were you raised in a, a religious community or environment? I was raised in a family that really never showed anything religious during my childhood. We did not go to church even on. Christmas and Easter, as they say, the CNE Christians. We weren't even that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did have a Christmas tree, but there was no talk about God or Jesus. Uh, there was there. I was given a King James Version Bible, the kind with the gold leaf, mm-hmm. uh, as a child, and it looked like something holy that I really shouldn't open uh, or touch. So you know, I never read it. It wasn't until uh, I was a young teen and a family I babysat for started to challenge me to think about what I believe, uh, that I started to actually change my mind about uh, faith. As at that point, though, I really had declared myself to be an atheist. All the Mm. religious stuff I'd seen around me, I considered kind of anti-intellectual. And, you know, if if you believed that stuff, you couldn't really be a rational person, I thought. So how did uh, how did that change things for you then? What what were uh, what were the what were the things I guess that compelled you to to take faith more seriously? I think being challenged to read the Bible probably was the biggest effect on me. These neighbors kept inviting me to church, and I kept banging uh, stomach aches and stuff to, to get out of it. Which <laughs> only worked like a couple of weeks, especially since the neighbor was a doctor. (laughs) So that that idea backfired pretty quickly. Uh, But what they finally said was, hey, it it doesn't matter so much whether or not you go to church. It matters what you believe. Have you read the Bible? And I realized it was the best-selling book of all time, and I had not read it. And I thought myself, you know, this highly intellectual grade school student, so or middle school student at that point. So I uh, thought, okay, I should have read it. And they challenged me to start by reading Proverbs, which mm. was a great place to set me down because the first lines of Proverbs are just filled with, you know, all of Proverbs is filled with wisdom. And I could not uh, you know, maintain my 
intellectual arrogance <laughs> while reading Proverbs, I realized I had a lot to learn and it was very humbling. And from there, I decided to read the whole Bible uh, and that uh, changed my life. So after you got out of the book of Proverbs, did you come across passages where you said, now, come on, how this, yeah. this can't really fit with the way we understand the world to be now? Uh, well, I came across certainly a lot of things I didn't understand and a lot of challenges to things I did understand. However, I have never come across anything that challenges my scientific understanding. So let me push into that just a little bit further here, because I'm really interested in uh, points of connection between your faith and your scientific work. So, um, and let me preface that question, I guess, by noting that in some areas of science, there's this there's this kind of superficial conflict maybe between science and faith, say human origins, where it might be claimed that what science says stands in conflict with what the Bible says. But then at Biologos, we think you push beyond that superficial level. There's actually this deep harmony between science and faith. In your field, computer science, computer technology, it might be thought that at the superficial level, there just isn't any contact at all between science and faith. Like in math, you're going to get the same answers, whether you're a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist, right? But is there a deeper level to your work where it does matter that you're a Christian, where your work itself is actually influenced by your faith? Yeah, there, there is. And it's, as you're you know, suggesting, right, it's not in the math per se, but it is in, or in the computation or the logic of how the computer works, but it is in the guiding forces that we employ when mm. we decide what to build, um, what powers to build it, um, who to build it for in particular. It's interesting in the world recently, there's so much more emphasis on justice, which is fabulous to see. Um, when we look deeply at what's been done in, you know, in many areas, in medicine and technology, uh, you know, across a lot of the great innovations of the last uh, century, it's not justly distributed. And unless you intentionally seek that up front, it, you know, I think the evidence shows it doesn't happen on its own. And as a Christian, I feel challenged to look for opportunities to do more to rectify the injustice that just happens naturally if we don't seek to you know, kind of level things out more equitably. Mm. Well, good. Well, let's uh, dig in a little bit more then to some of your work and what it is that you're doing and how you are working toward uh, justice in that way. So beginning with uh, affective computing, this is one of your main areas of work, not effective with an E, but affective with an A. So what's what's your uh, elevator pitch for what affective computing is and why it's important? Well, hopefully the affective is nicely confused with effective. <laughs> the original idea was that most computer interactions were frustrating. They were annoying. They were designed largely by engineers to you know, achieve some well-defined objective task that usually had essentially no consideration for human feelings in the loop. And subsequently, people, you know, there's just a lot of computer rage, right? Things that were just <laughs> so annoying. 
um, take, for example, this, this old little software agent, this paperclip that Microsoft had brought, that was designed to make things friendly, thinking people would <laughs> like a little face and a voice and a little smiling thing. And that drove people nuts. What was that thing called? Um, it was called Clippy. Clippy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Clippy actually had brilliant AI behind it. it, had some of the most sophisticated machine learning. It could see that you were probably writing a letter and it would you know, dance mm, out yeah. on your screen and say, oh, it looks like you're writing a letter. Let me help you. And uh, people got so mad that there would be pictures online of Clippy hanging up by a noose and <laughs> stories of people actually who shot their computer, um, you know, uh, several times through the hard drive and uh, there was a story of a chef in New York who threw his computer in the deep fat fryer. He was so mad at it. <laughs> so computer rage was a real thing. And I mean, it still is in a lot of places. Uh, and we were thinking, how could we make computers more intelligent? And what engineers were focusing on mostly was, uh, did it accurately know what you were doing, like writing a letter? And I said, you know, I think there's another aspect of intelligence that we've been completely ignoring here. And that's emotional intelligence. That's the intelligence that even your dog has when it sees you come home and sees you look really stressed and upset versus you look really happy and playful. And in one case, the dog puts its ears back and its tail down and looks sympathetic. And in another case, the dog wags its tail and looks happy. Uh, and always the dog looks happy to see you. And when you um, take those nonverbals and that acknowledging of human feelings into the interaction, interaction goes more smoothly. So I propose that computers that are trying to be intelligent also need emotional intelligence. And then I also showed a whole bunch of ways computationally that that could be achieved. So the book you wrote that was called Affective Computing, where you made that argument, was published 20 years ago, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah time has flown. <laughs> What's been the progress in this field since then? Oh my goodness, progress has been uh, tremendous. It started a little slowly because a lot of people thought it was nuts, but it has absolutely exploded and worked over the last uh, five to 10 years. The uh, progress includes uh, camera-based systems that can interpret all the movements on your face and in context start to see if that smile might mean that you're frustrated kind of a smirky, jerky smile, or a very slowly building rounded, happy smile that involves the whole face and perhaps also your head bouncing up with joy, looking beyond the face at the entire set of gestures and movements from a person in context and interpreting uh, if they're a pleased or upset customer and uh, how then to incorporate that into an interaction so that the customer has a better experience. So there's a lot of progress reading faces, a lot also now reading voices, uh, tone of voice, if you sound pleased, curious, bored, irritated, <laughs> angry, and uh, you know, again, all of that needs to be interpreted carefully in context. And it's not perfect, uh, just like people aren't, but it is able to do a lot now. 
so this isn't just a matter of raw computing power somehow for computers to understand uh, our emotional states, right? It's not no, just no. so. So what is and and I realize we're getting into a philosophical territory here. Of what's the difference between how computers process this information versus how we process information, and why can't yeah. we simulate that exactly? Yeah, I think the biggest problem is we don't know how it works in people. We do not understand how people recognize emotions. And one of the one of the ways we think it works, or one of the things we think helps people who are better at recognizing emotions actually succeed, is we think that people sometimes contagiously get emotions. When you're, say, listening to somebody describing what's going on, Sometimes you contagiously get infected, if you will, with their anxiety or their stress hmm. without even intending to. And then something in you feels that and starts to interpret that. And so it's not simply a logical set of observations and reasoning about them that infers somebody else's stress. It's also that you are a human being who's capable of experiencing uh, something very similar to what they're going through. It's not the same thing. Uh, it's not always going to be the same thing. And that substrate lets you better understand. It. And computers do not have that substrate. They do not have feelings. They do not have the ability to feel and map somebody else's feelings onto what they feel. The best they can do is have a little computational uh, configuration of logic that they try to match to with some words attached to it uh, that they try to match to what's going on. So even if uh, you could get that logic module to simulate the kind of emotional responses, you're saying there's still something different here. Yes, there's something different. And there's also just a big gap in our human understanding of how all of this works. Uh, and one of the things we learn over and over in trying to build smart computers is just enormous appreciation for how humans work, how our brains work, how our uh, feelings work. Where we are absolutely mind-blowingly amazing, and we have barely scratched the surface of understanding what's going on inside ourselves. I can anticipate, though, some uh, difficulties for how we react to computers as they get better and better at robots, say. So you were talking about the rage people had at Clippy earlier. If if it gets to the point where if I bang on my com my keyboard when I'm frustrated and the computer responds with, ouch, stop that, you're hurting me, and it, you know, it sounds believable, mm -hmm. do I have some duty or ethical obligation then to treat it differently? Or are you just well, saying, no? Nope. That's an interesting question. And, and let's say, suppose it's not your computer, but one of these humanoid appearing robots. Yeah. Uh, people have been building robots that look like their wife or like their daughter. And then they demonstrate at the engineering conference some of the behaviors. For example, one engineer demonstrated slapping his wife robot across oh. the face. Now, would you, you know, I mean, that just causes a visceral uh, aversion in all of us, right? Horror. Mm -hmm. uh, and what should the robot do? Should the robot just ignore it? Because if it was shown, for example, in a robotic baby doll, if people strung it up by its toes and it screamed, more people would actually string it up by its toes. People actually enjoyed torturing this little oh. baby robot doll or baby girl. Uh, 
it's sick. Uh, you know, <laughs> things this brings out in human nature sometimes. So what they decided to do with that first My Real Baby doll was make it so that if people misbehaved with it, it would just shut down. Mm. It would not uh, behave in these ways that gratify these evil impulses in some people. Similarly, if, if a humanoid robot has uh, an ability to respond when you hit it in a certain way, is that something we want to choose to uh, you know, imitate a human response and you know, emit sounds of pain or objection? Uh, or should it just shut down? And also one could imagine maybe both alternatives being uh, reasonable in different circumstances. Maybe you're trying to train somebody who has violent tendencies to start to feel for other people or something, right? Could a robot be helpful in that? There are all kinds of new uh, them opportunities that are already here in some of these forms, uh, you know, teleoperating these robots, right? You could have a human operating the robot's response and adapting it on the fly to what was deemed to be most therapeutic for helping somebody with a particular problem. Hey, Language of God listeners. If you enjoy the conversations you hear on the podcast, we just wanted to let you know about our website, biologos.org, which has articles, videos, book reviews, and other resources for pastors, students, and educators. We also have an active online forum. We discuss each podcast episode, but it goes far beyond that, with lots of open discussions on all kinds of topics related to science and faith. Find it all at biologos.org. So I want to get to asking you about some of the the more practical applications you've worked on with regard to this, but let me push just a little further into artificial intelligence. You've brought that term up a, a couple of times and it gets used, as you've noted, in lots of different ways and perhaps irresponsibly. You uh, say that we're a long ways off from this, right? What is it that computers can't really do very well that we do? Yeah. And let me distinguish between what computers can't do today versus statements of they will never be able to do X. Because uh, it's very hard to say something is impossible, right, in the future. Uh, it's simply that it's not possible now with what we know now. And um, with what we know now about computers and lots of different forms of them and even extrapolating enormous computational ability of them, uh, they do not have feelings or consciousness. They do not have, quote unquote, a mind of their own, like some people like to say metaphorically in even in popular media these days. Uh, they, are, they actually really do not think in the sense that people think, even though we commonly use human-like terms like thinking, learning, believing, understanding, uh, when describing the appearance of what they're doing. Okay, so then tell us what these computers can do really well, perhaps even better than we can, and maybe do that by sharing uh, some of the the technology that that you've been involved in helping to develop, some of the applications then. 
Yeah. And and by the way, Jim, you're really good at sounding skeptical. I don't know if people have told you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, just just noticing, you know, the tone of your voice, right? Which uh, and by the way, computers are not good at reading skepticism. They're not ah, good at reading between the lines. They're not good at sarcasm uh, or joking or humor. Uh, these are very complicated things, even for people to to describe how they happen. And computers are still far from all that. Uh, they there are people working on giving them these abilities. There. What are okay? So, what are computers really good at? Computers are very good when you have a whole lot of data at identifying patterns in that data that can be mapped to what I'll call labels. What people want uh, a computer to say about those patterns. Uh, so, for example, we might give computers a whole bunch of data showing different kinds of melanoma, skin cancer, and the computer doesn't learn one pattern for all of it. It learns large sets of patterns of what those melanomas look like. And then when you show it a new picture of somebody's uh, skin, it is not perfect, but getting better with more data at saying whether that looks like a melanoma or not. Okay. So apply that then to some of the other uh, applications that, that you've been working on and developing that detects different kinds of patterns. So we have been focused on detecting patterns that look like human affective states. Is this a human that looks happy, frustrated, annoyed, uh, you know, good states, bad states, interested states, bored states for student learners, and also now increasingly health states. Uh, we're especially focused lately on states of whether or not a person is having a neurological event or a mental health event. Uh, specifically in neurology, we've been detecting whether or not people are having the most life-threatening kinds of seizures. And then this, the AI in a wearable form alerts somebody to come be with them at that time because death rates are significantly lower if a person has somebody there at the time of uh, grand mal seizure. We're also focused on mental health states. Uh, we are now able to uh, use an AI in conjunction with a doctor that improves the ability to track if a person is uh, depressed, uh, getting better, or getting worse. And we can now do that on a finer grain basis in between doctor's visits and recommend behaviors that might help that person uh, get well. So what's the wearable technology look like in this case? Is this just one of the apps on my Apple Watch that will be able to do these things? Or does it have to have a lot more sensors than that? The Apple Watch is lacking uh, one of the key sensors that is useful in our research. Uh, deep in our brain, when uh, the parts of our brain that are involved, especially in memory, attention, and emotion, are activated, uh, in particular parts that are uh, involved in processing fear and anxiety, it causes a skin conductance response, an electrical change in our uh, sweat gland activity, well, actually an activation of our sweat gland activity that shows up as an electrical change in our skin. And with the addition of a sensor in the wearable that can measure those electrical changes in the skin, we can pick up some very interesting changes related to that neurological activity. Uh, so we're using that in our seizure detection algorithms and in the mental health tracking algorithms. Uh, so those are sensors that are 
custom that we developed at MIT Media Lab that are now commercially available through Empatica. Uh, they are not yet in consumer devices. So this, when they're when it's monitoring for seizures like this, so somebody uh, the, this device can tell when they're about to have a seizure and or just once it's started that it alerts somebody or what what does this look like in practice then for somebody who's wearing this device yeah the um the impact embrace device that does the that is fda cleared for monitoring for the most dangerous kinds of seizures detects when the seizure is happening and it turns out the most dangerous time is right after a seizure when it might appear that the person has the seizure has ended and they're holding still, hopefully there's somebody there to reposition them and make sure there's nothing in their airway. And during those minutes afterwards, that's when uh, it's possible for somebody to stop breathing. We think the seizure can actually, even though it looks like it's ended on the outside, it could actually be spreading deep in the brain in a way that uh, maybe the person's not moving, they're holding still, but it can, uh, attack a part of the brain that can turn off your breathing in those minutes following the seizure. So it's really important that somebody be there during that time to stimulate you and possibly provide first aid. And uh, without uh, violating confidentiality or anything, are there, have there been instances where you know that this device you and your lab have been working on have saved this person's life? I, we have heard lots and lots and lots of cases of where people said they got the device alerted them, they got there, and the person was found not breathing. And when they mm. uh, turned them on their side or flipped them over, they went from blue to pink and started breathing mm. again. It wow. absolutely makes my skin conductance go through the roof hearing these stories. <laughs> now, again, the device is not saving the person's life. The device is uh, detecting this event that's potentially dangerous, summoning a person, and it's the human being, it's the human plus the AI that makes the difference. It's a human getting there in time to give this first aid, to reposition a person, to stimulate them so that they go from not breathing to breathing, uh, and some some cases to do more than that. I should say, too, that it's not perfect. Uh, you know, a battery could die, a wireless could not communicate properly, the phone alert could go to voicemail. Unfortunately, we've also seen tragically some cases where, you know, the person, for example, thought they only needed to wear this at night and then they died during the day mm. or they thought it was going to their caregiver and their caregiver's phone was off. So there are um, limitations. Uh, the human plus AI system, I think, is much better than just the human system right now, but it's still got uh, room for error. Is the mental health uh, application then as far along as the, the seizure one is here? Well, mental health is really just getting started and it's a lot more complicated. Uh, and we have, you know, events are not as discreet as seizures. Um, actually, it's also been kind of paused. <laughs> well, it's still going on, but it's um, a little slowed right now because of this global pandemic. And that has caused us to start a whole nother effort, which we had been doing in influenza very slowly in the background. Uh, and then when the uh, coronavirus pandemic hit our uh, all of our in-person studies and suddenly we couldn't do those, we shifted to doing COVID-19 studies. And now actually 
uh, and Patagon has been funded by HHS and US Army and is doing studies around the US and in the UK uh, using a wearable plus AI to detect physiological changes that happen when you're first exposed to the virus before you even come down with any symptoms. And we're doing gold standard daily PCR testing so that we can test every day if you might have a significant amount of the virus in, in your system. And that's allowing us to build a new kind of AI that in the future, I hope you'll be able to check your watch and see, you know, hey, I feel fine today. I'm going to go visit grandma, you know, who might be high risk. <laughs> uh, but it says, well, you may feel fine, but actually you have an 80% chance of fighting a viral um, infection right now, even though you're asymptomatic. Uh, oh. I suggest you stay away from grandma, get a test <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, make sure uh, that you're not you know, developing because it can take days from first exposure to developing symptoms. Uh, and so people have this period usually of several days where they may actually be you know, contagious to others without even realizing that they're sick. Hmm. There's a there's a TV commercial out now for Apple watches and all the things that they can monitor, right? Besides fitness sorts of things that we started with sleep patterns, even EKG, you know, it gets us wondering where this is all headed. And do we ever get to the point where too much, there's too much information that I'm trying to monitor all the time. Is there ever a, is there ever a, a point where it, it causes me more stress to think about all of the different things that could be going wrong in my body right now? Or where is this all headed eventually? Yeah, I'm really glad you're asking that because the society really needs to have a lot more conversations about what we want with the power of this data. When, you know, when you're sharing uh, continuously tracked mental health data with a trusted psychiatrist or a trusted friend, then you know, you, you know that they really just want to use it to help you. Uh, when a large consumer company that sells you, you know, 20 different services is tracking it, then mm -hmm. you have to ask, you know, well, how are they going to use this to sell you, uh, you know, different things in the music space? Or how are they going to use this to influence payments? Or how are they going to, you know, if you're in a country like China where the government owns the backend data access to everything, you know, what is the president of China going to do with your mental health data and your <laughs> physical health data and your everything you spent money on data and where you go to church data or don't go to church data uh, and tracking everything about you, where you, I don't know if you've followed the Google uh, location tracking, you know, it sends little mm -hmm. updates. I've been entertained by this because since the pandemic, my behavior has changed dramatically. It's I not very interesting, people. those monthly reports of where yeah, you've been. Wow, I really have only been to five <laughs> places during the pandemic. This is, you know, you know, which grocery stores, and, you know, now I'm spending my Sunday mornings at home, you know, on Zoom. Yep. So it's very, uh, it's very powerful what you can glean from that data. And I think we need to be asking exactly what you asked and looking very carefully at uh, who are we giving access to this data and what are their plans for uh, these data and not just give open-ended, you can have my data and do whatever you want with it, which is what these big companies have right now. Um, there's a, 
there's a periodical from your institution that I look at occasionally, the MIT Tech Review. And just last week, I had clicked on an article and saw the online version of the MIT Tech Review that uses the tagline, because technology is never really neutral. So in a, in a similar vein, I've heard and used the line even myself that technology itself is neither positive nor negative, but neither is it neutral. And I think these kind of taglines help to counter the popularly held belief maybe that technological innovations can be used by good people for good purposes and by bad people for evil purposes. And that's the end of the story. But what do you think further about what our interaction with computer technology is actually doing to us, to the way we live, to this prospect of human flourishing. Yeah, I, I like that tagline in general because it makes people stop and think about how is technology biasing us? How is it making our lives better or worse? Uh, there, there was a wonderful study out of UPenn that looked, for example, at social media use. And while most studies are just looking at correlation, you know, um, so they're confounded by, you know, is A causing B or is B causing A or is something else causing them both or uh, whatever. Uh, this study did the gold standard of causality. Uh, it's called a randomized control trial. They randomly assigned undergrad students to a group that was, uh, they were all, you know, iPhone users. and you know, this is UPenn, I believe, uh, and they randomly assign people to, you know, use Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram the way you normally do, or limit yourself to 10 minutes a day um, for three weeks. And mm -hmm. after three weeks, they looked at a lot of different pre and post measures to see what changed. And what they found was that the group that limited to 10 minutes a day showed clinically significant reductions in loneliness and depression. <laughs> uh, and those who um, used it as usual did not show reductions in loneliness and depression. Uh, and mind you, these things are rampant and they're growing on, uh, you know, actually across society now with the pandemic. So there's something very ironic about this, right? That the, the social networks that we're increasingly a part of have the exact opposite effect on us. <laughs> but, yeah. Now, I want to be careful not to paint it all as bad, right? Some, some people do use these uh, social media in good ways, right? To, to connect with someone. Um, but by and large, our youth are, uh, you know, they're operating with a fear of missing out, with anxiety, with comparisons of likes. Why didn't I get many likes on that? Why, you know, they are uh, often looking for more than just uh, baby pictures, you know? And mm -hmm. that is uh, a problem. And they're, they're also growing up with this. So they're not growing up with the, you know, you know, there's an opportunity cost, right? They're using this one thing, which means they're not spending time on another thing. They're not spending time with face-to-face, -face, getting to know complicated fellow teenagers and young adults, uh, dealing with the day-to-day -day reality of not looking your best, not looking like how you post yourself on Facebook, uh, and, you know, not just looking at the highlights and the wonderful moments, but the majority of life, which is much richer than that. So let me turn the, turn the skepticism on here again. <laughs> is, is one way of responding to this, though, of saying, now, come on, 
technological innovation? Isn't this something that every generation has worried about? Didn't didn't tools radically change us back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, the way we lived? Didn't the printing press radically change the way we interact? And automobiles is computer technology is computer technology somehow different from these other technological innovations in what it does to us and how it affects our lives? Yeah, it's it's similar and it's different. It's uh, it's similar in that yes, people will tend to overreact to each new thing, and there will be naysayers and luddites and people who want to throw it all out. And uh, it's it's also the case that there are real changes. You know, when when paper was invented and was a new technology, and when people could suddenly write things down much more easily, uh, you know, people did not have to remember things as much. And our brains probably did change. Who could have scanned brains <laughs> back then versus now? They they probably would look different, although they look different in a lot of different ways, right? Because so many change, changes have happened in lifestyle. Also, we find, however, that the language we're using today about computers is drawn from language we use about people. And we're making computers in our image. We're making computers that look like people. And, you know, like the daughter robot or the wife robot or, uh, you know, the imitation of you robot that some of my colleagues dream of sending around the world so they don't have to travel so much. And the one that right now wouldn't have to worry about the virus if it traveled, right? We all send our robots off to the meeting, uh, mm. our avatars to collect and to bring back the interesting tidbits. So right now, it's I think it's a bit different because it's being designed to imitate humans. And it's being designed in our image. And that raises new questions beyond just augmenting our abilities or augmenting our memories or augmenting our strength and our muscles, as technology has always augmented. Do you uh, reflect on this as a Christian and you're using these, you're in at least alluding to theological language almost of us making computers in our image as we uh, Christians talk about we are made in the image of God. Does this augmentation, this integration of computer technology into our lives further and further, and even pushing further into, say, elements of transhumanism, does this fundamentally make us something other than human? Does it move us beyond what we're really supposed to be in the in this Christian sense of you no, know, God made us this way, and we ought not mess with that so much. Hmm. I I won't use the word transhuman because that's got a bunch of evolving definitions right now, um, mm -hmm. but I think it does call into question the materialistic view. Uh, you know, when people say we are nothing but, and they fill in the blank after that. Uh, there's just not evidence for that. As we build computers and our image and we see what they can and can't do, we see more and more that we don't fully understand what we are and who we are and that uh, there may be uh, it, you know, a lot more. And there really is a rational basis for saying that just the natural material stuff that we can build and, and shape into something like us is not enough, right? There is something more. 
And I think that's very exciting about this technology. It causes us to think uh, very humbly about not just the limits of our knowledge, but uh, the limits of our tools in science and the limits of our philosophy. And I, I mm. think for a person who does believe in God, uh, they find this exciting and it's, I find this exciting and, com- you know, and completely compatible with faith that allows uh, that science, while incredibly powerful and valuable, and I, and I now love it, even though as a kid I hated it, uh, it's, it's not all there is, right? It is itself subject to something much greater. Hmm. From your uh, perspective, from where you sit in this field, um, what are the what are the promises and the perils of computer technology for making this a better world for greater human flourishing? Maybe maybe I'll ask it like this: as you as you survey the field and see trends and see um, trajectories where it may be going, what is it that what is it that causes you concern? And the flip side of that, what is it that gives you hope with regard to these uh, advancing technologies and how, it, how, how they'll affect our lives? I, I think my, my biggest concern just goes back to human arrogance and greed and uh, our own myopia where people so often are driven more by uh, how to you know, make money in a business or control other people or other parts of human nature that don't, but, you know, don't focus on what is really good for most people. They focus very selfishly on what is good for a very small number. And that uh, scares me because people, a, a, a small number of people with those kinds of emphases in power can use technology to bring about a lot of control over other people. And I think that could be very harmful. Hmm. Um, my hope is in things that help human nature rise above itself and uh, believe and show, believe in and show love for others uh, that shift from being so self-focused, which by the way, is also a recipe for bad well-being, uh, mm-hmm. and to being much more other focused. And when we uh, remember that each person is, uh, and from a Christian standpoint, made in God's image uh, and worthy of love, um, and all people uh, have equal worth, that we can then be inspired to uh, show this love and care for everybody and not just get wrapped up in uh, making some amazing piece of technology uh, for one's own benefit, uh, but really stepping back and asking what's best for for this large group of people? What's best for others? Where is their real need? Not just something that, you know, beefs up my resume or helps uh, these people paying for my work make even more money. So I think we all have to step back and say, you know, where are these needs in society uh, and try to reorient the great power of technology to those needs. That gives me hope when people talk to each other about those needs and listen to each other uh, and show love for each other and then turn the power of technology to addressing real world problems. 
Hmm. Well, may it be so. Thanks so much, Rosalind, for talking to us today. Thanks, Jim. Language of God is produced by BioLogos. It has been funded in part by the John Templeton Foundation and more than 300 individuals who donated to our crowdfunding campaign. Language of God is produced and mixed by Colin Hugerwerf. That's me. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are produced out of the remote workspaces and the homes of BioLogos staff in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you have questions or want to join in a conversation about this episode, find a link in the show notes for the BioLogos forum. Find more episodes of Language of God on your favorite podcast app or at our website, biologos.org, where you will also find tons of great articles and resources on faith and science. Thanks for listening.